Romans 8, Paul writes, Thus from the love whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go back, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Yeshers are coming forward. Let's worship the Lord through the givings of our offerings. Thanks so much for your generous giving. We've been able to pay off the sound system and continue to move forward in ministry. So thank you very much for that. The ushers will receive it now. I should also mention, Elizabeth Ashwood is with us this morning. Her name is Elizabeth. And I believe she wrote this song as well.
ignore this for a second. It's supposed to be a surprise. Okay. I should have built more erector sets as a young kid. I wouldn't have had these problems when I got older. Ah. Appreciate that Ministry of Music uh, by Elizabeth, by the way, uh, wrote that song. I think Paul said that. And uh, she's actually cut a couple of albums. And uh, maybe one of these days we'll have some of those out there for people to, to purchase. Well, um, I wanted you to know I, I missed you all last week a whole lot. I, my, you know, it was, I wasn't on a retreat. I know Paul said I was on a retreat, but I wasn't. Uh, can any truth come out of this, man? I don't know. But I, I was on San Francisco, and I was attending the Evangelical Theological Society meeting where all the you know, academic uh, people from the evangelical circles get together and hobnob and talk about interesting things. Not. Nah, it was really boring. <laughs> and then, then I went to the American Academy of Religion, where all the professors from all around the world get together who are in, into religion, and they discuss uh, even more important things. And it was really actually very, very boring. But uh, I was out there... What I, there was one good uh, lecture that I heard, and it was by a man who was uh, just, it was one of the, the opening uh, sessions at the Evangelical Theological Society meeting, and uh, he was showing how, he looked at every, he was a historian, and he looked at all the major revivals in Christianity since the Protestant Reformation. And he said the only thing that they have in common is, and I bet you could guess this, is prayer. And he showed how behind every one of those major revivals, those reforming movements, uh, there was a, an incredible basis of prayer. And his theory was that what made the revival a revival was prayer. You didn't have to have a PhD to do that either. You can find it right in the Bible. And I say all that just to keep this in front of your face. And I want to do it every single Sunday. Maybe not, but if I'm going to be obnoxious about anything, I want to be obnoxious about this. I encourage you to keep on praying. Just keep on praying. I challenge you before to... Put five minutes uh, a day. Try to invest five minutes a day in praying for this ministry. Much more if you feel led. I, just want, I, don't, know, I don't want to make that a legalistic formula or anything, but I, I want to uh, challenge you with that. Uh, because prayer is what's going to uh, make this uh, place a place for the kingdom of God and do kingdom work and whatnot. Well, anyways, it's a holiday season and it's a time of... Uh, a time of uh, Christmas trees and Christmas presents and joy and little kids and spending an awful lot of money. And it's also a time of uh, getting a lot of phone calls from charity organizations. I wonder if you've had this happen to you. I'm sure you have. It goes something like this. You're doing something very important and all of a sudden the phone rings. You run and you get the phone and you say... Merry Christmas to Boyd residents. What charity organization did you say you were with? Oh. Yes, the, the, the uh, people organized for policing political correctness. Yes, I, I've, I've heard of them. Yeah, National POOP, yeah. Yeah, I, I've, I've yeah, heard wonderful things about your organizations. You do a lot of good. I, I would love to give to your I really would love to give to your organization, but it's kind of, kind of embarrassing to say this, but we, we really are out of money. No, no, I, I mean we're really out of money. 
I, I'm sure you do a lot of great things, but, but you see, I, I have no cash and no money. Checks bounce, so you have to take my word for it. Of course I believe in political correctness. Me? I, my, my middle name is political correctness. I, I live and breathe political correctness. Yeah, when I said I live and breathe political correctness, I didn't mean to oppress people on respiratory systems. No, I... No, I, I, yeah, I, I should be more sensitive about, about that sort of thing. But I'd love to, you do a lot of good, I'm sure, but I just can't invest. Uh, I just, I, we were given to three organizations right now. We're hardly making those bills. I would love to, but I just can't. I have to say no. No, I have to say no, really. I, please, believe me. How much do I make a year? This is getting kind of personal. Yeah, I make more than 25000 but no, I don't feel guilty for it. I mean, I work hard for that money. Well, I spent it all. I mean, it's Christmas. That's what Christmas is for. And I don't have any left. No cash. Read my lips. No money left. I can't, I'm sorry. I just can't do it. Yeah, I've heard the sermon about the Good Samaritan. I've preached the sermon on the Good Samaritan, but you don't get the point. I just... I don't mean to sound like I'm out of the holiday spirit. I don't mean to sound like a, I'm a Scrooge. I don't mean to sound like a, a miserly, Eurocentric, patriarchal, male-dominated, racist, uh, uh, bigot, but, uh, but I have no money. Yeah, I, 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 I know it's my... Yes, I, I see your point. It is my fault that there's suffering in the world and that people don't use inclusive language. I confess. Okay, okay. Uh, okay, I'll send you $10, all right? $10? No, no, not $10 a month. $10. I know, I know I'm very, very cheap, but really that's the, the, best, the best I can do. Yeah, have, have a Merry Christmas. No, no, I, I didn't mean to slam uh, the Jewish festival Hanukkah when I said that. I, 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 yeah, have a Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, Happy Ramadan, New Moon Solace, Halloween, uh, Chow Mein. Yeah, ha- have it all real good. Thank you for giving me the opportunity con- to contribute to your wonderful organization. It's really been a pleasure uh, talking with you. Not! You get calls like that around this time of year, and they're all well-meaning, they're all good. But what they do to me, and I'm sure they do this sometimes to you, is it puts pressure on you. Hi, not all of them, none of them are that pressured, but there's, there's, a, there's a pressure there. I have trouble saying no to things like that, especially to good causes like the political organization for policing political correctness. I mean, and it's hard to say no to a group like that. So you feel pressure, you feel awkward, and you hate to tell people, you know, I can't do it. There's pressure there. We all hate pressure, and we all get a lot of pressure. Not all sales car lots are like this, but some of them are, a few. You drive in there, and, and my wife and I were searching for a van this, this uh, last year, and you drive into the sales lot, and it's like these people, you know, it's the end of the month, they, they haven't made their commission yet, and they just are kind of like vultures there, and they just, you know, and there's a pressure in every move you take to walk right behind you, and there's pressure to buy, and just pressure all over the place. Door-to-door sales, not all of them, but some of them. This little uh, piece of advice will uh, have made it worth your while to come here this morning. You'll be filled with wisdom if you just get this one little piece of advice. Never, ever, ever take anything for free. It is, uh, it, it's never for free. My wife one time took a free photo of our baby. Uh, the guy came and he was working with some photo company. He said, I'll give you a free photo of your beautiful, adorable, wonderful baby. And uh, my wife agreed that it was beautiful, adorable, and wonderful. And so she got the free photo. I came home from work one time and she was just crying and crying because the guy came to give her a free photo. And then put pressure on her to buy the rest of this stuff that he had, all the other photos that he had and packages, and wouldn't, say, wouldn't, wouldn't let her off the hook. There's pressure. 
I hate pressure. I hate to have pressure put on me. I hate to put pressure on other people. And probably you do too. And that is why many of us, when we hear the word evangelism, cringe. The word, it just... It, it, Resonates something wrong inside of our being. There's something. It's just it, it, because what it means to me, what it means to some of us, is, is pressure. When I think of evangelism, I think of pressure put on me to witness, and me putting on people, putting pressure on people when I witness. Uh, at, at the same evangelical theological society of Hobnobs that I was at, there was a missionary who came out there, and he spoke uh at, at one of the sessions and he basically said this he's a missionary from algiers a mainly muslim country and he basically said you know there are millions of people going to hell every year thousands every day and it's your fault it's your fault it's not my fault because i've been he didn't say that but that's what he was implying it's not his fault because he's a missionary and he spends his whole life doing that but it's your fault you got to get out there and save these people and it's pressure oh guilt shame i'm lousy i'm miserable uh maybe you've heard sermons like this where i you're on the, the final day of judgment and you're going to be up there and, and then there'll be you know, the, the saved people over here and the unsaved people over here and the lake of fire down here. The, saved people, the, the unsaved people are going to look you eye to eye. I, I've heard someone's like this, really. And they say things like, like people that you, you know, friends, relatives, people that you cross and pass on the street, but you didn't witness to them. And they'll look at you and they'll say, why, Craig? Why didn't you tell me? I would have believed. But now it's too late. And they're casting the lake of fire on the way down. They're saying, why? <laughs> and I'm supposed to go and enjoy heaven now, you know? <laughs> Pressure. The message you get from a lot of talks on evangelism is that you are the Savior of the world. It's your job to be the Savior of the world. That's what God calls you to do is to save the world. There's no better way to get pressed in your life than to believe that you're the savior of the world. This is like cosmic codependency. I gotta walk around and, and I'm supposed to be saving the world. It's my job to fix the world, but none of us make very good saviors. I used to really think, you know, I, I'd be walking when I was first a Christian. I got a lot of this stuff, and I'd be walking down the road, and I'd be passing people, and I'd be thinking, maybe that, maybe I was their only hope for them to get saved. Maybe, oh, maybe that person, oh no, maybe, you know, on the day of judgment, they'll be saying, "Why, Greg? I passed you on the street. You know, you know how crazy that can make you." <laughs> Spent two years one time, me and Craig back there. Hallelujah, hi, Craig. Remember, we used to go knocking on doors. We were so utterly obnoxious. Uh, totally obnoxious, knocking on doors and, and, and inviting people. We were sincere, but, you know, I, I, it wasn't so much that we were trying to, we had a burden for these people individually. We didn't even know these people individually. We were really trying, and this is what happens a lot with e- evangelism. We were trying to fix ourselves. We were trying to get guilt off of our back. We're trying to make it all right with the boss. See, Christianity, when you have a high-pressure system and, and, and you think you're the savior of the world, it becomes sort of like a dysfunctional, high-pressured, multi-level system where there's a pressure on the top to put pressure on you, to put pressure on the next guy, to put pressure to, to get people into the, into the system. And it cracks you up. The result is that you have, you make very obnoxious Christians. Very obnoxious Christians. And I was obnoxious when I was first a Christian. I was really obnoxious. I never talked about anything else to people. I never really made friends. I never really made relationships with people. I just talked at them. I, I told them what they needed to believe, what they had to do, how they had to get saved, how they really were sinners, how what they believed was wrong. I'd get into a lot of arguments. Totally obnoxious. It's hard to believe that, that I was ever obnoxious, I know, but it was true. Persistent. You get Christians who are always on. They're always on. And people know that they're always on, but they're always, you know, they always have this kind of air of phoniness about them. 
and, and even the way they say it, they tilt their head and have you accepted the Lord? And, and they're on. They're always selling. They're always selling. They're never real. They're never vulnerable. The result is that you turn a lot of people off. The worst way to save the world is to think that it's your job to be the Savior of the world. You turn a lot of people off that way. The miracle is that you still save some people. You also turn a lot of Christians off that way. You burn out on that. Being the Savior of the world is a hard deal to, to, to pull. And what happens is, is you begin to burn out on that. You get sick of it. And that's the point I got to. Forget it. I, you know, yeah. I just get mad at God. God, why would you, in all your sovereignty and all your wisdom, hang somebody else's eternal salvation on whether or not I'm in the mood to witness at a particular moment? That's kind of high risk, isn't it? Is that really wise? I just get mad at God. Why? You know, I really don't believe. Whatever else you get out of this, get this. God is sovereign. The Bible says, like in Acts 2, that when, when Peter preached, as many as should be saved were added unto the church. In Acts 13, when Paul preached, it says, as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. Whatever else you get out of those passages, this much we need to get out. And that is that no one is going to be lost by accident. God's not willing that any should perish, the Bible says, but that all should come to repentance. He's not going to wager the eternity of a heart that's open to Him and, that, and the eternity of a person that he loves on a, on a chance, on what you happen to be thinking about. Were you daydreaming when you should have been witnessing or whatever? God is sovereign. No one's going to be lost by accident. And ultimately, he's the savior of the world. It's his responsibility. It's his job to save people. He's the one that restores hearts, that changes minds. That It's not our job to convince people. It's God's job. It's our job just to be used. To be used by God. And that's not really a job. That's really an opportunity and a privilege. I want to talk a little bit about evangelism. As the last, uh, the last sermon in this uh, series we've been doing on spiritual warfare, here's where the rubber really hits the road because if spiritual warfare is reclaiming, as we've said a lot of times, it's reclaiming territory back from the enemy for God. It, it, it's taking what was under the dominion of evil and bringing it back to God. If there's any place where that becomes crucial, it's in the area of evangelism. The church is called, and this is what... This is the modicum of truth that was in that, that, that uh, view that I just gave you about evangelism. The modicum of truth is that evangelism is, when all is said and done, the most important thing that the church does. The criteria for success ultimately is not how good of music you play or not how you preach or not how you run a Sunday school system. It's, are you saving souls? The minute I say that, all of a sudden I feel pressure again. Like, oh no, yes, I should be out there. I want to take a look at evangelism. And to do that, we're not the saviors of the world, but I want to look at the Savior and look at how He spread the good news when He was here. The church is the body of Christ here on earth now. Let's look at the body of Christ when He was here and how He evangelized people and see if that model maybe sheds a new light on what evangelism is all about. Paul read for you uh, uh, John chapter 4, verses 4 through 19. And I want to bring out four aspects, four aspects of Jesus' discussion with that woman that could tell us a little bit about what evangelism is. The first thing you see is this. Jesus entered into a relationship with that woman. Evangelism is building relationships. This isn't the only form of evangelism. There's a place for, for uh, street preaching. There's a place for leaving tracts. There's a place for that. But this is a primary form of evangelism. It's about building relationships. The traditional model for evangelism basically says this. What evangelism is something you do to somebody. 
Evangelism is what you say to somebody. It's talking at people. You evangelize them. You talk at them. It's a unilateral thing. You need to repent. You're a sinner. You need Jesus Christ. You need the four spiritual laws. You need to read this track goodbye. That's sometimes how it's done. It's talking at people. What we see with Jesus is something very different. Where in the whole of the gospel do we ever find Jesus talking at people? Jesus talks with people. And that's, there's a big difference there. He fellowships with people. He has a relationship with people. He eats down and, and he eats down. He sits down and eats with people. He eats down and sits with people. Sits on people. <clears throat> Jesus builds relationships. Jesus moved out of his safe area of what could have been nice, uh, nice, a nice community of people who agreed with him, who believed in him. He moved out of his comfort zone. He was always doing this throughout the Gospels, moving out of his comfort zone to reach people that others didn't reach, to re- relate with people that others wouldn't relate to. Constantly moving out of his comfort zone. In this, in this chapter, what we find is this. Jesus sits down with this Samaritan woman right, at, at this well. Now, Jews never spoke with Samaritans. Jews, there was a racial hatred between Jews and Samaritans that, that, that was unbelievable. It was considered an anti-religious thing, a defilement of Judaism, to talk with a Samaritan. Jesus moves out of his comfortable Jewishness and speaks with a Samaritan. Not only that, but he's speaking with a Samaritan woman. It was considered improper, if not anti-religious, for a Jewish, an Orthodox Jewish male to speak to a woman in public. Here Jesus is speaking to a woman, not just a woman, but a Samaritan woman. And the most radical thing about this, this, this discourse is this. Jesus says, can I have a, a drink of water? Because he had nothing to, to, to get water with. So he asked, can I drink out of your cup? Jews really had hang-ups about that kind of thing in the first century. They knew a little bit about saliva. They didn't know about germs, but they considered it to be a defilement to have another person's saliva, except your wives, touch your mouth. You had to go through a ceremonial, ceremonial cleansing. Here Jesus, a man, is asking a woman, a Samaritan woman, in fact, a Samaritan woman who we find out later in this passage, is really living a kind of questionable life, having been married five times, has a bad reputation. Jesus is saying, can I drink out of your cup? And that's why the woman is so shocked. You want to drink out of my cup? That's radical. Jesus moves out of, his, out of his, the security of his comfort zone and begins to build a relationship with this person. We are called to follow in Jesus' footsteps. And what evangelism is, first and foremost, it's not a matter of talking at people, of telling people what you believe, of telling people what they have to do. It's first and foremost building a relationship, moving out of your comfort zone. The church is called to share the cup of people in the world, with unbelievers in the world, before we're ever called to share the gospel with them. We're called to share the cup with those that are radically different from us. A different race, a different culture, a different economic strata, a different social lifestyle. We're called to drink of their cups, share their saliva, if you will, and to begin to build that relationship with them. Because until we do that, in most cases, we don't have the right or the credibility to ever tell them, share with them, what is most important about our lives, and that is our relationship with Jesus Christ. We want to share 
In the traditional model, we want to tell people what we believe, but we don't ever want to listen to where they're at. Jesus did just the opposite. He sits down and first, he says, let's talk. First, he says, can I drink from your cup? Can I be on your level, in other words? The second thing we see here is this. Jesus builds a relationship. There's something about that relationship that's, that's pretty fascinating. Jesus didn't condemn this woman. He had an utterly non-judgmental stance towards this woman. In verses 17 and 18 that Paul read, Jesus brought out the fact that this woman had been married five times and brought out the fact that right now she was living with a man that wasn't her husband. And that in the first century, I mean, that's kind of eyebrow-raising in the 20th century, but in the first century, that is like horrifying. It was, in fact, against Jewish law for a woman, for any reason, to be married more than twice. Most people would only marry a woman once. Yet Jesus' stance towards her, he brings out this information not to say anything about her. He brings out this information to say something about himself, to begin to communicate to this woman that he's the Savior of the world. So he tells her her past. He doesn't do it to judge her, to condemn her, to uh, have a disrespectful attitude towards her. In fact, one of the most beautiful things about the Gospels is that when you, when you look at Jesus, how he relates to people throughout the Gospel, he never, regardless of where the person was at, regardless of what kind of sin the person was in, he never showed disrespect. He treated people like people. He valued their worth. He treated them with dignity and respect because they're persons created by God. And so it is with this woman here. doesn't say a word about that. Not a condemning word. doesn't even raise an eyebrow. One of, I think, the greatest tragedies with Christianity in American culture is that we've got a real PR problem, folks, a public relations department problem. What our culture first notices about us as a movement is what we are against rather than who we're for. They know what sins we don't believe in. They know this about us and how we harp on this and, and, and uh, you know, what, well, all the things that we're against. They know that we're against sin, but they don't know. We don't communicate well enough because maybe we don't live it good enough that we're for sinners. So they know what we're against instead of what we're for. There's sort of a self-righteous spirit that sometimes infiltrates evangelicalism. It's a spirit that leads people to think that somehow if they don't condemn a person's sin, they're condoning it. Like, I need to find an occasion to tell this person that I don't like the way they're living their life, that I don't like the decisions they make. And if I don't do that, somehow I'm compromising my stance. So we kind of posture ourselves and pontificate, and we really make it clear that we don't believe this, we don't do this, we don't agree with that, da 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 And all that does is it severs any possible relationship that we'd ever have with unbelievers, which is what evangelism is all about. We sever the connections there. What comes out of us is a condemning kind of attitude. Sometimes we don't build relationships with non-Christians because, well, we don't have enough in common or, or they don't share our values. How is a non-Christian supposed to share our values? They're not Christian. Or because we don't like the way they talk. It's a little too vulgar. Or the jokes they make or the music they listen to or the places they go. Sometimes people are afraid of compromising their reputation. What would happen if someone in my church saw me with these people doing this, you know, and we worry obsessively about that kind of thing. Birds of a feather flock together. What would have happened with Jesus' ministry if he would have believed that birds of a feather flocked together? If he would have been more concerned with his reputation than he was with people? If he would have been really interested in never portraying an image which others might interpret as being defiled? 
what would have happened is that none of the people that he ministered to in the gospel would have ever been ministered to. Because the only people he ever hung out with was the, was the sinners, was the, the, those who were ostracized from the religious establishment. Those are the people that he hung out with. And as a matter of fact, he had a pretty bad reputation. That comes out in the Gospels too. He hangs around with harlots. He hangs around with tax collectors. He hangs around with people who drink. Da, 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 da. That happens. But what Jesus did is he built relationships that were non-condemning and entered into their world. If we're ever going to reach the world, folks, it won't be through the sin that we condemn. It will be by the way we love sinners amidst their sin. It won't be by pronouncing what we're against. It will be by pronouncing who we're for and doing it at the top of our lungs. It will never come about by pronouncing what we hate. It will be by pronouncing what we love. If we're ever going to reach the world, it won't come by trying to change people's behavior and trying to clean up the society. Not first and foremost. It won't come by changing people's behavior. It comes by loving people as they are in the midst of their behavior, like Jesus loved people. It won't come by keeping ourselves at a holy distance from people and just talking at them. Kind of an in-house thing. Here we are, safe and secure. Let's talk at the world and tell them what they need to hear. It won't happen that way. It will come as we enter in a non-condemning, non-judgmental relationship with people. Listen to them. Put ourselves under them and build a relationship with them. That is evangelism. It's building relationships. It's building relationships that don't condemn. The third thing we see about Jesus is this. Jesus met with this woman here and with all that he talked with. He met people where they were at. He met them at their point of issue. He met them at the need in their life with this woman at the well. He first talked about her thirst. And the hassle it is to come up to this well all the time. They used to carry these big jars. And they have to get the water out of the well and then carry these five-gallon jars back, usually on their heads. Women doing it at noontime. That's hard work. Jesus knows it's hard work, so he uses that as a point of contact. How would it be if you never had to do this? If, if, if you never had to thirst again? She's interested. And then Jesus addresses a far deeper need. He addresses the thirst in her life. The hunger in her life. That thirst, that, that vacuum that is there that led her to, to live with five different men and now, and now be living with a guy who wasn't even her husband. Jesus meets people where they're at. At one time... In Cana, he was, at a, he was at a wedding party, and the guy ran out of wine, and he was embarrassed. Now, there's a world to save, Jesus. There's a lot of things you could be doing. There's a lot of places you could be, you know, spreading the gospel and doing miracles. But here, he sees a wedding host and sees that there's a need in this person's life. And so, he meets the need. He's not above that. There's no problem that's too small, no problem that's too low for Jesus to get involved with. And it has to be the same with us if we're going to begin to build relationships that are going to lead people to the Lord. Now, let me share with you a personal example, if I may. The last um, several weeks, I've been given the opportunity, and I really consider it something of a privilege, to, uh, be, be, to befriend uh, two women uh, who are married to each other. I uh, met them through a... Uh, well, that's not important. But one of them is mildly interested in Christianity. They're involved in a lot of different things. One is involved in, in, in shamanism, which is an old ancient ritual thing that many, many Christians might regard as being demon-possessed. But I've entered into a friendship with them. It'd be easy, the easiest thing to do, and it wouldn't be time-consuming at all, and I might even feel a little bit self-righteous if I did it. The easiest thing would be to say, you know what the Bible says about homosexuality? You know what the Bible says about this or that? It'd be easy to do. 
And a traditional model of evangelism kind of does that. You talk at people, you tell them what's wrong, but you don't know anything about their life, you don't know where they're coming from, you don't know their childhood, you don't know the issues that are going on. You just very quickly talk at them or leave them a track and then leave it alone. And God sometimes can use that sort of stuff, but it's not the kind of ministry that Jesus had. So I, was call, I felt called to befriend them and, and, and to go out uh, to, to supper to Burger King and, and, and sit down and talk with them. And, and over several weeks now, to be involved in this, this discussion with them. I took the time to learn something about their lives. I was given the opportunity to enter into a lot of their wounds, a lot of their issues, a lot of the incredible, unthinkable abuse that went into making them who they are today. And somehow it changes your perspective of people when you get their story. You find out that, you know, people are, are more than just their behavior. There's a history here, folks, and, and some of their behavior maybe is explainable when you know their history. And that doesn't excuse anything, but it does turn the light on it. It, it, it means you relate to them as people, as persons with real issues. One of their issues is the relationship with each other. They both have uh, certain psychological disorders, which makes the relationship kind of tough, but it's very important for them that this relationship survives right now because... When it's, when it's fragile, one of them is inclined towards suicide. In their messed up, crazy world, the one thing they've got going for each other is the relationship with each other. That's not ideal. That's not God's perfect will, but right now it's how they survive. And they're having trouble with that, and they want to know if I can help them with that. And it'd be easy to say, well, no, I don't even agree with this relationship to start with. I don't even like what you guys are about. I don't even agree with that. But see, that's imposing my issues on them. That's, that's me relating to them out of my agenda whereas Jesus related to the people out of their agenda. If this is your issue, I want to know how I can help. How can I, how can I work out this problem that you're having with each other? Is that compromising? I don't think so. In fact, these, these two, for other reasons, know where I stand on that issue. That's not compromising. That's simply loving people. It's simply to love a person is to respect them where they're at. And you may not agree with their life. You may not agree with anything about them, but respect the fact that their issues are their real issues. To come against that at the start without knowing anything about it is to invalidate them as persons. To say, well, your problem with, with your lesbian relationship, that's an invalid problem. And maybe push them to suicide by doing that. You just can't go in and bulldoze through people's lives like that. The Holy Spirit doesn't do that kind of thing. So you work with people. And my motive here isn't even like an ulterior one. Like if I just abide with them, put up with them long enough, then I can bring them to the Lord. I hope I can, I hope I can bring them to the Lord. But my motive here is to love. And therefore, eventually when the time is right, to share with them what Jesus Christ has done for me and how Jesus Christ has helped me and how I am not one whit better than they are, but Jesus Christ worked in my life and to share with them that. And maybe if I've taken the time to enter into their lives, I'll have a little bit of credibility with them. When I say Jesus loves you, the word love will have a little bit of meaning because they've been able to see it incarnated a little bit. That, I really believe, is evangelism. But see, if you believe that you're the Savior of the world, if you think it's your job to, to save the world and instead of trusting God for that, well then quick, you've got to fix them right now. You've got to do it all right now. There'll, there'll be pressure on you to not tolerate any of this and bulldoze forward. One of the things that's interesting about Jesus is that he met people where they were at in a non-condemning fashion to build a relationship and he didn't always feel pressured to blurt out the whole gospel right there. He changes the, uh, the water into wine, but there's, there's no evidence in the gospel there that he did a sermon afterwards. He heals the, the blind man, but he didn't feel forced to right now convince him about who he was. He does it because there's a need there and Jesus loves. He meets the needs and trusts God, to use, trusts God to use it to build the kingdom. So it is with evangelism. We build relationships with one another. 
Relate to people where they are at in terms of their need. Whether it's your relatives, whether it's your neighbors, whether it's the people you work with. As a church, we're called to enter into people's lives, to build those relationships from the inside. The cleaning up process of people comes from the inside as God works with them. God's got to do that. God will only free this lesbian couple from that relationship when God gives them something better to replace it with. And I believe if they become Christians, eventually they're going to see that. And that's not my job to go there and bulldoze it and impose something on them when they're not ready for it. My job is to love them, to communicate the love of Jesus Christ. And so it is with all of us. i got a vision for this, this body as a church. And maybe I'm a visionary, but I really believe it's what the church is called to do. To meet people individually, but also as a church, where they're at. Are you hungry? Well, before we're going to tell you about the gospel, we've got to meet that need. There's a real need there. Are you homeless? Are you a pregnant teenager out of wedlock? Are you an alcoholic? Meeting people at their point of need, whatever their need is, however great or however small. And I can see this place eventually, and I don't think it's all that far down in the future, of having downtown St. Paul a shelter for, for homeless people, having a rehabilitation center for alcoholics, having a home for unwed teenagers, meeting people where they're at, having a, having a, a, a food line for the hungry. Beginning to, what a witness that is, to say that we care about people where they're at, in their situation, even if it's their own fault for getting there, to love them as they are, before and even apart from we ever ask any kind of questions about them. Jesus built relationships with people that were non-condemning. He met people at the point of their need. The final thing I want us to see about this story is this. Jesus, in fact, Paul didn't read this section here, but at the end of the story, this woman runs into Samaria and starts telling all the Samaritans about this Jesus. This man who, she says, he told me everything that was true about me and he didn't condemn me for it. This man who is the Messiah as is evidenced by his love. And she went and told everyone about that. And the Bible says in verses 39 through 42 that many in the city ran out to meet Jesus, to get to know him on the basis of this woman's testimony. Jesus, through his love for this woman, his concern for this woman, his uh, uh, willingness to meet her at her point of need, immediately turned this woman into an evangelist. And she went around just telling everyone about the gospel. That says something about the motivation for missions. When a person really meets Jesus, and Jesus does a work in their life, if it's a fresh thing, if the Spirit of God's moving in a person's life, if they're experiencing some life and vitality and joy there, Telling people about it isn't going to be an artificial kind of awkward thing where you just kind of have to, you know, you know, be embarrassed about it. It's something that kind of, come, kind of comes kind of natural. Uh, it's like, you know, you, you, you go to Kmart and you find a sale. You call up your friends. Hey, there's a great sale going on at Kmart. You get a new product and, and it works. You have a new hair conditioner or something. You call up all your friends and, ah, oh, I got this new hair conditioner. Don't, doesn't everyone do that? I do that all the time. It, it kind of comes natural. That's what evangelism is. There's a lady who came, uh, who's been coming to our church. Uh, she was uh, unchurched up to this point. Uh, through various means, she decided to come. And she was just kind of overwhelmed by it. She's never knew the church was like this. And so she told me this. She goes, well, and, you know, again, there's not a long uh, background with Christianity here where she's getting beat up and feeling like she has to evangelize. But she just said, you know, I called my friends and I told them about this and it's so different and blah, blah, blah. She went on and on. I'm thinking to myself, you know, this is great. This lady, you know, second time in church, and here she is just naturally calling everybody. It didn't feel awkward to her. It just kind of came natural. The best way to become an evangelist, to do what God calls us to do in spreading the word, 
is by reinvesting in your own relationship with the Lord. When there's something dynamic going on in the center, it tends to ooze out quite naturally. It doesn't need to be forced. When there's not that life, when there's nothing to be excited about, when there's an emptiness on the inside, when it's just a religion, that's when people have to use guilt and shame to motivate people to witness. You ought to be witnessing, you got to be witnessing, how dare you not witness, you know, on the day of judgment, they're going to be looking at you saying, why? They use that because on the inside, there's no joy there. This church if we're going to motivate people to evangelize, it won't be because we're going to give points for that sort of thing. The question, how many people have you led the Lord since you've been a Christian? You know, that is such a bad question because some are called to lead people to the Lord, others are called to plant, others are called to water, and all of that is very important. But we, yeah, we, we make evangelism, we pin it down to the moment of leading the person in four spiritual laws and, and, and leading them to Christ. We're not going to use any of those means, but what we are going to do the best thing you can do individually and the best thing we can do as a church is to be passionate about your worship and to be passionate about preaching and to be passionate about prayer, to be passionate about every area of the ministry, to be in the context where the Spirit of God comes on us and begins to infuse us with life and begins to make the reality of God's forgiveness and the reality of God's grace there in our lives. Because when that begins to happen, an excitement begins to build and you'll find that it's on your mind more. It's something you want to share. And as you begin to build relationships with unbelievers, it happens quite naturally. There's no pressure involved. There's no sense of awkwardness. It just kind of filters out. The best thing you can do for evangelism is rekindle your relationship with, with the Lord. This is what we at Woodland Hills want to be about. It's the Great Commission. The last thing Jesus told His disciples was make disciples of all nations. This is what we want to be about. And we're going to be pretty intentional about this. There's several things we're going to do to make this possible. One is that we're going to always be trying to be passionate about what we're about, to be invested in the Lord, to be calling on the Spirit to be here so that we constantly re-experience the presence of God in our worship and in our lives. We'll be doing that. Another thing we're going to be doing is, and be thinking about this, be praying about this, please, but we want to develop sports programs or, or, or different areas where you can invite, invite your non-Christian friends to, and, and they're not going to feel like there's anything religious about it. They'll, they'll just have a chance to rub shoulders with Christians, making points of contact, beginning to build the relationships that Jesus talked about. Having a softball league or a bowling league or a badminton league or a volleyball league or just having some games, having family nights where you can just invite your friends. And there's not going to be any heavy evangelistic thing here. We just want to get to know people and love people. We want to put on seminars occasionally. Meeting people at their point of need. Not to secretly evangelize them, but just to, with the care and love of the Lord, help them. So, let's talk about making marriages work. Let's talk about family issues, raising kids. Let's talk about finances. Something you can invite your friends to and not be afraid about it. Periodically, we're going to have sermon series that are more evangelistic. And by that I mean, you always got to explain what you mean here. We're not going to be, you know, are you a Christian? Now become one now. But we're just going to be aware. We're going to, I, I, I'm going to try to address it in such a way that a non-Christian could really easily understand and present the gospel in a simple way. I want to preach in, in a way that will nurture Christians, but I want to be very sensitive to non-Christians. And we'll have three or four week series where you can bring your friends and we're going to talk about real practical things to share the gospel with them. Starting in December, and I close with this, we'll have one of those series. We're going to enter in uh, a four-week uh, series on Christmas. It's Christmas time. 
a lot of people begin to... It's, I mean, sometimes the only time of the year where they begin to think about Jesus, they begin to think about things of God, they begin to wonder why about certain things. Sometimes people get very depressed. I always get depressed during Christmas. I don't know why that is. I just, it's just like a, a downer for me. Um, and a lot of people are like that. And so it's a good time to begin to talk to them about the Lord. I would encourage you. You better do this. Pressure. <laughs> no. I would encourage you. This would be a nice time to invite friends that you have. And we're going to talk about real practical things. It'll be called Untangling the Tinsel, Discovering the True Meaning of Christmas. And we'll present uh, messages in that way. Can we stand? As always, the altar is going to be open. There'll be people up here who, if you have a need in your life, we'd like to meet you at your point of need, whether you're a believer or an unbeliever. We'd like to meet you at your point of need. If there's anything you'd like to pray about, the altar is open, and I encourage you to come forward. There'll be three or four people up here who would love to pray with you. Lord, I thank you for what you're doing in this place. I thank you, Lord God, for the people that you have called to be prayer warriors for this place and the energy that's being invested in this. I thank you, Lord, for the way your spirit is moving, Lord, for the way you're building us to be an army of soldiers for your namesake. I thank you, Lord, for the opportunity that you've given to us to share the message, the good news.